This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The 2015 MLB First Year Player Draft is behind us, and episode number 11 of the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show has arrived in your ear canals. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Mon. In New York City is Jake Siner. He was in uh, he was in Studio 42 yesterday. What's up, Jake? Uh, what's, not so much. Not so much. It was, uh, yeah, it was over in Secaucus, New Jersey, which uh, rarely do I go to New Jersey with so much enthusiasm. <laughs> but I did, and I went, and I had a, a good time and, and learned some things and talked to some people, and uh and saw some uh, some teenagers make a lot a whole lot of money. Whole lot of money. Uh, by the way, Secaucus, New Jersey. Um, some notable people from Secaucus, New Jersey. Actually, I had this planned out to be like, oh yeah, there's all these people. Now you know something about Secaucus, New Jersey. But in the notable people category on Wikipedia, I have not heard of like a single one of these people. But apparently, <laughs> the guy who was the naked cowboy in Times Square, uh, apparently that guy's from Secaucus. His name yeah, is no, Robert makes, John makes Burke. Sense. People would come out of Secaucus, lose their clothes, but I didn't <laughs> But uh, welcome in. It's episode number 11. Jake did get to hang out yesterday uh, at MLB Network for day number one of the 2015 MLB first-year player draft. We are very deep now into the second day of the MLB first-year player draft, and uh, so far there's been you know 8 trillion picks already made today. Jake and I were talking a minute ago before uh, we got on that the MLB Draft Tracker Twitter account, at MLB Draft Tracker, is hilarious because for 362 days out of the year, it's pretty quiet, and then it just explodes with a thousand tweets per day it seems like on the draft days yeah for a second there i thought you were actually gonna ask me to go to jonathan mayo and, and give some analysis on everything <laughs> all right jake pick number 199 the astros are Oklahoma state lefty michael freeman but, but i still specialize in the minors i need these guys to play some pro games before i can uh can tell you everything about the uh you know the 190th pick from Whatever, Let's see. But... That that just occurred moments ago. It was Missouri State left-hander Matt Hall. He went to the Tigers with the 190th pick 12 minutes ago, Jake. So great, great pick. Get excited. Pick. It's all a good pick. Every day, every pick on draft day, for the most part, always a good pick. A good pick for the guys getting drafted. We're going to talk a lot about the draft coming up here a little bit later on in the show. We'll get some of Jake's thoughts about being at the draft yesterday and a lot, lot more. Uh, we, we got a good amount of stuff coming up on the show today. We're going to hear from Tampa Bay Rays first rounder Garrett Whitley. That's coming up on the show today. We're going to talk a lot about day one of the draft. Dansby Swanson goes first overall to the Arizona Diamondbacks, followed by two more shortstops. First time ever, three shortstops went to lead off the draft, uh, one, two, and three. And we'll talk uh, a little bit more about, uh, you know, Commissioner Rob Manford and his first draft, uh, Major League Baseball's relationship with the NCAA, a lot more. But that's coming up later. First things first, we're going to dive into our three strikes for episode number 11 of the Show Before the Show podcast. And we'll start it off with everybody's favorite promotion of the week and everybody's favorite promotion when he went to AAA and everybody's favorite promotion when he started in AA this year. Carlos Correa, the top prospect in the Houston Astros organization, has arrived almost exactly three years to the day since he was taken with the top overall pick in the 2012 draft. The shortstop has arrived at the big league level, did leg out an infield single for his very first major league hit uh that was yesterday on the road at chicago against the white Sox. finished the day one for four with an rbi he did strike out once but carlos correa who has been unbelievable at every stop of his minor league career finally arrives at the major league level jake some of your thoughts on uh really of the way that he finished triple a so strong and finally getting the call this week yeah i mean i'm not not all that surprised um i, I sort of wish i had more to say but frankly i think correa has probably been ready to take a stab at the major league since the beginning of the season i think he proved that with his performance at double a and triple a hit 385 in 29 double a games and then in 24 triple a games hit 276 794 ops three home runs not quite as dominant but still really really good at almost as many walks as strikeouts uh kept stealing bases you know we talked about him a couple weeks ago when he got the promotion to triple a um the guy's defense has is, is gotten better as he's come up through the minors he's gotten bigger and stronger um i think he's already got pretty close to a career high in home already has a career high in home runs this year um with 10 um yeah i think he he is likely to transition to the majors about as easily as any top prospect will just based on his profile i think the maturity and the makeup is just off the charts the guys in 
in Houston. I know we're excited to, to have him there as teammates and everything. He's well-liked and, and well-respected and I think very quickly going to become uh, a, one of the faces of that franchise and, and certainly uh, I think definitely provides a boost for Houston as they're trying to kind of right the ship after a strong start and a, a little bit of uh, a step back of late. The uh, the Astros have made a whole lot of calls to the big leagues um, just this week, it seems like. But the thing that I really like about this promotion is that it stuck to basically everything that the Astros laid out for what they wanted to see from Carlos Correa. Uh, Correa drafted with the first overall pick in 2012, with the exception of the injury last year, which now doesn't seem like really threw him off at all. Maybe we would have seen him at the big leagues toward the end of last season, but he stuck to that game plan and that blueprint. And so far, this Astros plan, which was so mocked and derided by so many, especially old school baseball people, uh, when they brought in kind of the the more sabermetrically front office, uh, advanced stats-minded front office uh, guys like Kevin Goldstein and uh, what we saw from the Astros was we might be bad for a few years, but we're going to I don't want to say embrace that, but we're going to wear that. We're going to accept that. But it's all in the ultimate aim of acquiring talent like Carlos Correa, guys like Mark Appel uh, and, and bringing those guys to the major leagues and having a lot of success with them. And what we have seen is until right now, it feels very much like it is working. Uh, Carlos Correa did say after his final game in AAA that he was excited for the challenge of heading to the big leagues and that he felt like he was ready for it and had been ready for for a while. So somewhat similar to what you just said, Jake, but the Astros called up Vince Velasquez the very next day. Uh, we've already seen them bring up guys like Lance McCullers this year. So these guys are coming. They're all graduating. All of this talent is really, really good. And the Astros are a team right now that not only looks like they're going to be a team to contend with this season, which I think is a lot earlier than a whole lot of people expected for the Houston Astros. But, I mean, right now, when you look at the things that the Astros have been able to do uh, with a roster that doesn't yet include, or at least until a couple of days ago, did not yet include some of their top talent in the minor leagues, they're leading the American League West. They have the best record in all of baseball, with the exception of one team, and that's the St. Louis Cardinals. One team is better than the Astros right now. Best record in the American League of 34-25. and 25. And, oh, by the way, they maybe just added the best prospect in all of baseball as well, depending on what you feel about Byron Buxton versus Carlos Correa. That seems to be the debate, but it's working right now. If I'm an Astros fan, this is just the tip of the iceberg. These guys are coming. Yeah, I want to get back to you mentioned Buxton and, and Correa, because that's an interesting one, especially around draft time to talk about them. But, yeah, it, you... You, you talked around it, but really, if you're going to punt seasons like the Astros did, the payoff better be pretty good, and, and it better be a player like Carlos Correa, who's, um, you know, looks like he's going to a contribute at a, a really high level with Houston at this point. You, you feel pretty good about his chances of doing that, certainly compared to other prospects, but has the personality and, and things to to be sort of the face of that franchise. But yeah, that's interesting because Correa and Buxton were in the same draft. They they. Um, you know, we're both kind of in consideration for that top pick. Correa wanted a little less money, and it seems like that was a big part of the difference just based on things we've heard since then. At this point, if you had to pick Correa or, or Buxton, I'm curious which way you, you'd go. That is a really, really good question. I think at this stage, uh, I would pick Correa just because I feel like what he has brought so far in his career has shown the potential for serious major league stardom at the most valued position. I mean, Buxton obviously plays up the middle, is a very, very dynamic player. You can't go wrong with either guy, but Correa bounced back a little bit better from a season that was lost due to injury and has shown at every level that he's able to adapt very quickly. He doesn't let offensive struggles hamper him defensively and vice versa. Uh, I just like, he has the whole package to me so far. Now, that being said, Byron Buxton is just about as good as, uh, as Correa or any other pick in that circumstance, but I I think if, if for my money, if I was drafting among those few guys, those few really top level guys, I think Correa would probably be my guy. Yeah, I think it's Correa, and I, I actually don't think it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's close. They're both elite prospects, and, and you're happy to have either on your team. But I think there's a pretty clear separation there for me, based mostly on his, his ability to play shortstop. And. He's just fun to watch, too. I mean, you watch yes. Carlos Correa, and he's one of those guys. I remember somebody told me when I first started in minor league baseball, you'll see guys who just have it. And you might not be able to define what exactly it is, but you'll see guys who have it, and you know that they have it, and they are going to be stars because of it. The first guy who I ever saw who was that to me was Jason Hayward. I remember seeing Jason Hayward as a 19-year-old and just seeing how much better he looked than everybody else around him. And yet... Carlos Correa is one of those guys, too. When you look at Correa, even when he's playing at AAA, when he's around guys who are, you know, 10 years his senior in some cases, he still looks like a man among boys. So it's this is going to be a lot of fun for Astros fans to watch for a long time. 
Yep, yep. Excited to uh, to have him on the TV every day, and and you know, not a whole lot left we were going to say about him in the minors. So excited for him. And excited. That's for true. Rebecca. Like, how many more times can we dissect that same animal? Right. Like, oh, here's how good Carlos Correa is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, we want to move on to strike two. Strike two, fire strike away. Two. Strike two, another promotion. Uh, a guy who has not gotten as much hype, or certainly not the same kind of hype that Carlos Correa has, but. Maybe even more fascinating in his own way. Uh, Pat Venditti, a relief pitcher in the Oakland Athletic System, was brought into the majors for the first time this week. You might know Vendetti. He is a switch pitcher. He pitches with both arms, throws sidearm for both sides. He was with the Yankees for uh, what close to a decade, pitching a switch in that organization, worked his way up to AAA, and on the offseason moved to Oakland. Um, seems like the kind of guy Billy Bean in the Athletics would, would identify, certainly loving getting all those platoon splits. Uh, made his major league debut and, and is now the the first switch pitcher I think we've had in in the major leagues, which is a pretty cool thing. He is so much fun to watch, and not because he's an oddity, but because he's really really good at what he does. Pat Venditti, it honestly stuns me that he did not get a shot of the big leagues with the Yankees over the last few seasons. He was drafted by the Yankees, taken out of Creighton University in the twentieth round back in two thousand and eight. I actually remember seeing him uh, pitch a handful of times in college. I went to college at the University of Nebraska, and he was about forty miles away at Creighton in Omaha. Uh, but the Yankees took him twice. They took him in the forty fifth round in two thousand seven, and then again the next year in two thousand eight. And I remember watching him in college and thinking yeah it's weird it's quirky throws with both arms but the thing is he throws well with both arms it's not just that he's deceptive and guys don't really know what they're going to see all the time because he throws left-handed because he throws right-handed he throws really really well with both arms as well he's got kind of a different arsenal from each side which is interesting uh and he throws things with confidence from both sides too and obviously inspired the rule the pat venditti rule about who has to declare first among the pitcher and hitter when a switch pitcher and a switch hitter come up together but But the reason that I was surprised is that in his minor league career, he's been very, very good. A 2.37 career ERA in the minor leagues uh, over eight seasons since he was drafted out of Creighton University in 2008. He's put up very good numbers. He's been utilized in a lot of different roles uh, in relief. He's actually started a handful of games as well. Uh, So far in his minor league career, he's appeared in 250 games as a reliever, nine as a starter. But Pat Venditti, he's been fun for a lot of people to watch for a long time, and it's really exciting to finally see him getting a shot. And I think because of the organization that he's finally cracked the big leagues with he is getting a real shot I don't think this is a token like oh let's see what this kid can do with both hands I think it's no Pat Venditti really brings some value and I think he's in a position now to really succeed being in that organization yeah it seems like the natural evolution of the Moneyball chapter about Chad Bradford and and how the A's kind of identified him with the numbers and then sent some scouts to see him throw in this crazy submarine and figured out sort of how or why it's working or just trusting that it did work in the minors so maybe it'll work in the majors uh, i think it's you know next i'm curious if this is a thing that we're going to see um you know happen with other players see somebody else try to do this there's one other guy that i know of that did this at some level is uh bajan rademacher is an outfielder with the cubs but he in college actually pitched from both sides of uh, of the rubber um, but he's been playing the outfield. He's a hitter in, in the pros right now. But if the hitting doesn't work out, you wonder if maybe he'll, because he was in the, the mid-90s, I think, from one side and the high 80s from another, um, something like that. But, but such a rare thing. But something you, you got to figure, if you have the athleticism to, to throw hard from one side and, and you have, you know, get started at an early enough age, developing from both sides a little bit, you know, you got to think somebody else has got to be able to try this and maybe get there with, with enough reps and practice. I'm curious if that's going to become something people try doing on the, the youth circuit at some point. Greg Harris, I believe, was the last switch pitcher to do it in Major League Baseball, and I think he did it sort of as a gag uh, toward the end of his career. Uh, Now he's 59 years old and very close to the end of his career, which is September 28, 1995. He pitched in a game for the Montreal Expos against the Cincinnati Reds and threw with both arms in that game, but it wasn't like a regular thing. This is the first time we've seen anybody come up who just does this, and Pat Venditti's been doing this since he was a kid, too. His father, when he was a child, used to order these custom-made gloves that he still uses from Mizuno in Japan that have six fingers so we can just switch the glove the glove from one hand to the other and uh, I mean it's not a token thing this is a real legitimate major league arm a guy who can be very effective in relief and I'm really excited to see what Pat Venditti can do yeah yeah me too and it's gonna be fun to watch and it's uh, it's the kind of thing that is going to bring people to watch baseball games they might not watch otherwise which I think is, is a good thing for the game too I was thinking about that this week, like how many people are going to show up at games in Oakland over the next few weeks and just several beers in be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> is this guy throwing with both hands? What is this all about? Yeah. 
Strike three, Jake. Changes to the amateur experience. Uh, the Major League Baseball draft has changed and evolved so much, especially in recent years, really since the TV era, uh, MLB Network now covering it, turning it into a real event. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before, but the MLB draft – somewhat doesn't fit well into our instant reaction Monday morning quarterback Twitter universe sort of world that we live in because if you are somebody who's really interested in the Major League Baseball draft you kind of have to take everybody that you see with the knowledge that you're probably not going to see them again on a big stage for another three to four years in most cases I mean Carlos Correa all the hype that he garnered coming out of high school in Puerto Rico in 2012 it's three years later and he's just making his major league debut so that makes it kind of a much more different event than what you see in the NBA or the NFL or even the NHL to an extent. But Jake, you put together a really, really good piece for the site yesterday about how this process has differed over the years and some thoughts of current players. Yeah. So we can, we can talk a little bit later, I think about um, some of the things that major league baseball is trying to do to, to change that draft and maybe get more exposure for guys or something we heard from uh, commissioner Rob Manfred about yesterday at the draft. Um, but first, I, I did this piece to kind of get a look at it from the standpoint of these amateur players as they're coming through. Um, I think especially in the last 30 years or so, we've seen a lot of changes in the process of what it's like to try to get attention from scouts and what it's like to, you know, how much you need an agent or somebody negotiating with you as you go through talking to teams because there's a lot more money involved and obviously just the media attention. I mean, 30 years ago, you, you might know who the number one pick is if you're a really diehard fan and your team picked number one. But the, the attention on it is a little different. There was no MILB.com or, you know, Baseball America was still pretty new back then. Um, it was a lot harder to find out about these guys. There's a lot more exposure uh, with that, too. So I, I sought out to find a couple of guys who had been drafted in previous years and then talked to a couple guys from this year's draft and kind of compare and contrast their experiences. So I ended up talking to Delano DeShields, the, the, uh, the elder Delano DeShields, who's managing at AAA Louisville now. But he was the 12th overall pick in 1987. Um, the Shields is interesting, one, because his son was a first-round pick in 2010, so he kind of saw this process uh, early in its, its stages, and then obviously in the last couple of years, once the AAU travel ball had picked up, once you know websites and newspapers and televisions uh, stations were covering this a little more uh, in-depth. The Shields is really interesting, because I think he was probably one of the last guys who was drafted in the first round and honestly had no idea that that was a possibility for him which is a crazy thing to think of now. So DeShields was primarily a basketball player in high school, committed in his senior year to play for uh, Coach Rolly Massimino at Villanova, which was coming off a, a national championship in 1985. And he really thought that was going to be his future. He was playing 20 baseball games a year for his varsity high school team, and that was it. So between his sophomore and senior year, he played about 60 games total. Um, talked to, he said, three scouts over the course of his amateur career and, and kind of told them that I'm planning on playing basketball and, and didn't really realize how seriously they were they were looking at him and there was no baseball america or, or anybody in baseball america was around but he wasn't you know having that put in his face and seeing that he was you know potentially going to be in the, the first half of the first round um and one day television cameras just showed up as he was getting off the bus from a baseball game and said hey you've been picked in the first round by the montreal expos well, you know you're gonna go play baseball um so he was totally caught off guard by that and that's such a different experience to the next yeah. guy to was Brandon Snyder, who was the 13th overall pick in 2005 by the Orioles, um, drafted one slot later than the Shields, but just in that 28-year or that 18-year difference, Snyder said by that point he was talking to all 30 teams and communications with all those teams. He had, you know, the the quote he had was that he was meeting with with people basically every single day, either scouts or agents or somebody involved in pro baseball, just to talk about his future and the the finances and college and things. And that was Scott Boris and a whole bunch of agents before settling with, uh, with the, the Reynolds uh, uh, agent, uh, agency. Um, but he was a guy who, who he was, uh, had the chance to go and play in some of the big showcases, the East Coast Pro and the Area Code, and he actually decided to pass on those because he was involved with a, a really good travel team, the Midland Redskins. One of his teammates was Cameron Mabin. Yasmani Grandal was on that team too, um, which that's a thing that's actually even in the last 10 years has kind of changed where – uh, these big AAU teams aren't able to stockpile two, three, four first-round picks on, on teams. So Snyder was with two guys who got drafted in the first round that year. That year. Um, every single guy on the team, he said, won Division One or pretty much every single guy. So scouts were coming out to see him. That's very different than the experience for the two guys from this year's draft. I talked to Garrett Whitley, who we're going to run the audio from that momentarily, and then Mike Nickerak. Whitley just went 13th overall to the Rockies. Nickerak went 27th overall. Or Whitley went to the Rays. Sorry, Nickerak went 27th overall to the Rockies. 
and these guys, Nicarak, he said in his uh, after his junior year of high school, he left three days before that year's graduating seniors were supposed to graduate for the summer, and he did not sleep in his own bed again until three days before uh, the school year was going to start. Wow. So the entire summer, he was on the road uh, going and playing tournaments and showcases and getting everywhere that he thought he needed to be to be seen by scouts. And, and I asked him, you know, you think you'd, you'd get recognized and have a chance to go in the first round if you didn't do that? And he said, absolutely not. And it was a, a similar uh, story for Garrett Whitley. Whitley actually was a guy who only played locally through his, uh, the end of his junior year and said he, you know, there was like one scout who happened to be in the area who kind of knew about him, but he had no idea that, that he was a guy on pro radars. He wasn't on pro radars really until he broke out. He went to the, the East Coast, East Coast uh, Pro Showcase and then the Area Code Games last year and, and broke out from doing the, the showcase circuit. Um, so Willie's an interesting guy because essentially in the last calendar year, he went from a nobody uh, on the national scene to a guy who went 13th overall in the draft and really owes that to the fact that he found a way to get on this showcase circuit. It was the only way he was going to get noticed. Um, so we can kind of roll right into that interview right now. I talked to Whitley at the uh, the luncheon before the draft on Monday. So this is before he found out where he was going, um, but asked him a little bit about uh, the AAU circuit and picking an agent and talking to teams. And, and he was a, a good interview, I think, about that whole experience. We'll start now with the first question I asked him was about uh, AAU and and getting noticed and what his experience was like there. Well, the interesting thing for me is that I didn't actually play for those teams. I played local ball um, until I was 15 years old. I played with my baby travel team. And then my 16, 17 age summers, I played American Legion, which was still local. Um, so my first exposure really out doing that circuit was at East Coast Pro and Area Codes last summer. And that was really my coming out. You know, that was when Pro Scouts first got to see me. And I got to go out and play that top quality of high school competition mm. and um, I don't know that was that was really cool because and, and I don't know how it is for other guys if they get sick of all the travel and stuff but for me that was the first time I got to do it um, so I love going out to, to California and um, I went to City Field and played in the Met Classic and um, I, I had a great time. I thought it was really cool. If, uh, if you didn't, I don't know if you got invited to those events or if that's something you had to seek out, but if you didn't get to those events, do you think you'd be getting uh, the attention sort of you are here and, and notice it? Absolutely not. How, I mean, what's, uh, what's it like to go from not being noticed to being noticed like that? And I'm curious just how, you know, conversations you have with scouts and teams, kind of what that's like. Um, well, it's been pretty, it's been pretty cool. I've, I've made a lot of improvements um, since last year at this point. And but, you know, if I hadn't gone to those, I, there's no way I would have even been noticed. There's only like one or two guys who even knew about me before. So it was the, the East Coast Showcase was the one that you went to that felt like? That was the first one that I went to. And then when I went to Area Codes, that was... Okay. East Coast was kind of a learning curve, and then out of Area Codes, I was fully comfortable again, and I was more myself when I was playing. And, and, uh, it was good. I did get invited to those and had to invite, um, had to go try out and made the team. Um, no, those, those were crucial. At, uh, at this point, how many scouts or people representing teams would you estimate you've had conversations with? Um, well, I've had, I've talked to all 30 teams. Yeah. And if I had to estimate a number of scouts, uh, Do you think that's pretty common for most of the guys at this point? I feel like for the guys in this room, right, yes. Right. I'm not sure about everybody else. Right. Um, then I wanted to ask, too, about having a, an advisor. Um, that's the thing that I uh, talked to guys from the 80s, and they said they didn't even think about it. Here's how much you had to think about that, how often you were approached by um, agents kind of wanting to be your advisor and how you picked the, the one you have. And, and... Um, well, we were approached starting out in area codes. A few guys came up and talked to us. Um, and that's actually where I met Jeff Rendazzo, who's my advisor. Um, and it was just—it was the same kind of process as picking a school or, or anything. You know, we, uh, we had meetings with—we narrowed it down to guys who we wanted to spend some time with. And we had meetings with them, decided who we liked. Um, and you know, with Jeff, we just—we hit it off. He's a great guy. I liked—well, um, I liked him. And then when he switched companies, I liked his new company even more than the old company, so it was perfect, and it, was, it wasn't that hard of a choice. How crucial has that been in the process? So oh, it, it's helped a lot. I mean... I know you can't maybe talk about all the details right now, but if yeah. you can sort of he just, generalize. He has so much contact with mm -hmm. teams that there's no way I would have mm -hmm. had. He gave me information that there's no way I would have had. Right. Um, he has advised me 
what things to do, what not to do, um, how to go about stuff, and it's just, it's really helped a lot. And uh, picking a, a college, too, I'm assuming you're committed to college, I forgot the whole before I came over and said, hey, but just the, that process, when you decided on school, you wanted to make a verbal commitment or signed a letter of intent, and what went into that decision for you? I made my verbal in August of 2013, okay. so that was before my junior year. Um, and, I don't know, I, I picked Wake Forest because it kind of just had everything I was looking for in a college. Um, really good academics. It's in the South, plays really good baseball. Um, but I wanted to go down South because that's where the good baseball is. Uh, but, I, I don't know, it was, it was just perfect for me. And, uh, yeah. and uh, I want to ask you, too, about the media attention, I assume, along with the area codes and the East Coast, and probably that expanded a little bit, but I want to ask both about doing interviews, what kind of reporters, if it's just been local guys or if there's been national attention, and also just the things that I know get written about you guys, how aware you are of that, how much maybe the people around you seem to be aware of that, and um, what it's like to kind of deal with that just being a high school kid. Well, it's been a mix of local and national, um, obviously more local than national just because you know, they're around and stuff. Um, but it's, it's all been fun mm. to get that attention, I guess. Mm. You have to say, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, the things that get written about me that I didn't contribute to, mm-hmm. sometimes I read them, I don't really go out looking for them. And, like, my friends will send me links or screenshots of stuff. Um, but, I mean, I'm not out actively looking for them and stuff. It seems like that's pretty common now as you get a lot of friends or a relative or something who's really enthusiastic and wants to send you everything from Baseball America. Is that <laughs> accurate? Is that kind of what yeah. it's been like? Um, and lastly, I want to ask about uh, autographs or things. A few players that I've noticed are getting a little more intense. The autograph pounds. I saw guys just outside, even here today, knew about the function. Curious, how many autographs do you think you've signed? Where people usually find you? What kind of the, what kind of usually kids? If it's um, older guys with the big books and stuff, who, who are you usually signing for? I haven't actually signed that many autographs. Uh, I couldn't give you a number, but I've signed things for kids. Um, you know, younger kids in the in my baseball program or people will show up to my away games and like again younger kids usually um, and ask if I sign some form. I've had a couple old dudes ask me to sign pictures of myself. Which you, get, you get to the minors, I promise you there's going to be more. <laughs> So that was Garrett Whitley. I want to thank Garrett for taking the time to talk to me and join us. Uh, yeah, certainly a, an interesting experience that he had going from a, from a nobody to somebody who was going in the first round and talked to him a little bit after he got selected last night. And uh, the word he used was uh, euphoria, which is a word that not many 18-year-olds are just dropping in. <laughs> Um, but I think you, you could hear he's a really, really bright guy. Um, he had talked to, uh, if you watch the draft, you heard Harold Reynolds talking about how he had talked to Columbia before he committed to Wake Forest and, and certainly uh, has a, a little bit of politician in him and just the way that he can speak into a microphone and, and sound intelligent. But, uh, you know, definitely a, an interesting guy, an interesting case, and, and one Rays fans are, I think, going to be pretty, pretty excited to get to watch over the next few years. What I think is funny about the draft is when you are a fan of a college baseball program, you get so many guys who are so highly talented who commit to your program, and then all of a sudden the draft comes and it's like, oh, man, we're going to miss out on this kid. We're going to miss out on Garrett Whitley. We're going to miss out on you know whoever else, Brendan Rodgers. And it turns into such a bummer. It's so exciting for those guys, but like for your team, it's such a bummer. Like I am just <laughs> a bitter Nebraska Cornhuskers fan who really, 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 really would have loved to have had Bubba Starling at quarterback, and instead they there he is finally turning his career around in double a with the royals fine fine guys who like their careers how many, and all how many their... podcasts do you think you managed to slide that complaint the in? bubba starling complaint in it's my goal to do it like week to week but you know it only comes up every so often but it's funny because you see you know brendan rogers committed to florida state or uh there are guys who are you know committed all over the place really in so many sec and acc schools but wake forest and alabama and florida and all this top talent and when you're a top collegiate baseball program if you have a kid coming out of high school and then all of a sudden he's a draft pick especially in those early rounds you know he's going to get a large sign bonus it's like you're wagering a ton on what he's going to be able to bring to your program down the road and then he might not even be there at all in the first place so it's it's a very interesting day if you're a college baseball fan or in some cases a college football fan uh but you know it's uh yesterday was very interesting because we saw two 
college shortstops go in the top two picks in the draft and then a high school shortstop go. And like we noted earlier, it's the first time ever that three shortstops have started off a draft. But uh, the top consensus, top overall talent in the draft, highest ceiling in the draft was Brendan Rodgers, the shortstop out of Lake Mary High School in Florida. He went third overall to the Colorado Rockies. But Dansby Swanson goes first overall to the Arizona Diamondbacks. And, and Jake, being in the room yesterday, the Diamondbacks made it known last week that they had their pick ready and they had notified players. In fact, they had notified a group of five players that one of them would be their top pick. Now it looks like they were pretty settled on Swanson for a while, but what was the reaction around Dansby Swanson going number one? We saw that cool video of him celebrating with his teammates after Vanderbilt won advanced to Omaha, but what was it like yesterday being around for that top pick? Yeah, the video is, is a cool thing. If you haven't seen that, we have that on the, the site just embedded in the, our draft recap story. Um, yeah, I think it was not much of a surprise to see Swanson go number one overall. Uh, it seemed like he had been pretty heavily connected with Arizona and was, I think, the talent that they wanted the most. I think the only thing that might have swayed them off of Swanson is if he wanted either too much money or they were connected to uh, Tyler Stevenson. I know he was in for a private workout with them. The catcher ended up going 10th overall to Philadelphia. Um, Stevenson had been willing to cut enough of a deal where maybe Arizona could have saved some money. I think they were probably considering that. But it seemed like Swanson was the guy that they considered to be the best player on the board and um, clearly they decided that paying him, you know, I don't think he's going to get quite the full slot amount, which is like $8.6 million. I'm guessing he'll get a million or so less than that. Um, but it seems like he was the guy they wanted, and certainly it makes sense. He's a guy who's hit, he can hit for a little bit of power, and he can really, really play shortstop, and, and that's the kind of, that has a lot of value in, in today's game. Obviously, we talked about Correa versus Buxton before, just the fact that the difference is really that Correa can play shortstop the bar offensively is, is lower there than at any other position aside from catcher. Um, so you have a guy who can defend there and hit, it's going to contribute. I think that's that's a guy you want. It's interesting. Yeah, you mentioned the, the three shortstops coming off the board in succession to start the draft. Actually, had six of the first twenty players were shortstops. Interesting to see the order they went. Getting uh, uh, Brendan Rodgers going at three with uh, uh, the LSU shortstop Bregman sandwiched in between. Um, yeah, it was interesting watching the, the top five and seeing uh, the way Houston was able to grab Bregman and and. Uh, uh, Preston Tucker, and then save money to to 37th overall to get Daz Cameron, who was a guy who is probably a consensus top 10 to 15 town. I think some teams like him more, some teams like him less, but um, would have gone probably in the top 10 if he didn't have such high bonus demands. And Houston's going to be able to hopefully move their money around for them and and grab three really of the top 10 or so talents in the draft, which is a pretty remarkable thing. It certainly eases the uh, the pain that they might have been feeling from having let Brady Aiken slide away a year ago. Cameron's another one of those guys. He's a Florida State commit, and uh, he yesterday was projected both by MLB.com and uh, BaseballAmerica.com to go fourth overall to the Rangers, and he fell a long, long way. Uh, that is one of the things that happens sometimes on draft day is teams get worried about signability, and they shy away from players because if you don't feel like you're going to be able to bring a guy in, it's difficult to convince yourselves that he's worth taking in a spot, especially a high school kid who has other options. If Daz Cameron wants to go play at Florida State, he's got that in his back pocket. If you're going to take somebody out of college, if you're going to take Dansby Swanson or somebody like that, more often than not, he's going to sign. He's going to sign quickly, and he's going to be with you, ready to go when those guys are able to report to teams, whether it's a short-season team or you throw them in with a full-season team, whatever it is. But I thought that was really interesting to see uh, what happened with Daz Cameron. And I think that segues as well to what were some of the picks that you liked maybe your favorite pick and and the pick that maybe made you scratch your head a little bit more than others yesterday yeah i uh i really like what colorado was able to do actually getting rogers and then getting mike nickerack at the 27th overall i know you were pretty happy about that just as a, a rockies guy um i think they probably got the highest ceiling definitely the highest seeing high, highest ceiling high school position player in rogers and, and arguably got the same from the pitching side and nickerack nickerack's a guy who can get the ball up into the mid to high 90s and, and lots of strength and size and he's a big kid and, and a mature kid i talked to him also for that that story we did on on the amateur status um, i like the pirates pick kevin newman the shortstop from arizona at 19th overall i thought that was a good spot for him i think uh i'm sort of in the the keith law camp where i think he's a guy who's he's hit and he can play shortstop and the only knock is that he doesn't have any power but i think that's possibly a fixable thing with his swing um, I think he's just got a, a really wide base, and maybe you narrow him up and let his hips kind of play a little more in his swing. That it's possible he might tap into a, you know, if he just taps into fringy average power, I think he's a, a guy that's going to be a, a really good above average shortstop in the majors. Um, and what Houston was able to do, just negotiating those picks, and if they can get Bregman, Tucker, and Cameron signed, I think that's uh, that's quite a haul. Uh, I liked what Philadelphia did um, for drafts that I'm, I'm having more trouble understanding. Um, I think the Marlins surprised a lot of people when they took Josh Naylor, a Canadian first baseman, 12th overall. Naylor's got 
big time power and and looks like probably he'll be able to hit at least a little bit but he's a clearly a first baseman only he's a big big kid um you know you look at the body and wonder if he's even gonna be able to handle first base long term i think he's probably athletic enough where where you think he can at least stay on the diamond and not be relegated to dh duty um he was a guy i think mlb.com had him 59th on their their top 200 list yeah. was was not a uh, a consensus guy at 12th overall and i think that's that's a fine thing if you're doing that to save money if the marlins are higher than nailer than than maybe the industry is i don't think that's necessarily a a bad pick in that regard, but usually when you do that, it's because you're setting yourself up to save some money on that pick and then go after some other guys with later picks. And this is something we saw the Brewers do with Cody Medeiros last year as a pitcher out of Hawaii. Um, was a guy who was projected to go sort of at the back half of the first round. I think that's what people were kind of pegging Naylor in. And then the Brewers used the money they saved from signing Medeiros to an underslot deal to lock up Jacob Gatewood and Monty Harrison and a few other guys. So they, they reinvested that money in a whole bunch of high-ceiling guys. Monty Harrison, another sense. Nebraska football commit that I'm bitter about. Yes, yeah, I, I, I went there just to bring that up. <laughs> but it, it, just looking at the the Marlins draft, it doesn't seem like they are setting themselves up to uh, do that. It seems like they took Naylor and and they're going through the rest of their draft, grabbed and you know the next pick was was Brett Lilac out of Arizona State, who gets Paul Mahomes comparisons, which is not that exciting. They've drafted a lot of college guys. Um, so confused by, by the strategy there. Maybe we'll see what happens when, when the bonuses come down. It's possible one of these guys is an overslot guy that I just don't realize is an overslot guy right now. But it doesn't seem like they're, you know, they didn't have the, the depth of picks like Houston has where if Houston saves some money at number two, then they can spend a lot more at five and, and 37. Or I know we saw the, the Astros do that the year they drafted Kreex. They had a couple of comp picks and things. And, um, you know, Miami just had its first, its second, its third rounder. No, not, no comp picks or anything mixed in there. Um so, you know, players are, are a little below on the board on some teams, and I think that's, you know, maybe raises a flag, but it's something that you can understand if their scouting department is just differing from everybody else's opinion. But to do that and not look like you're setting yourself up to save money and, and pull some guys out of different commitments, I think is, uh, you know, that's that's a little baffling. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. And we're only through the seventh round now, so it's possible there's still a pick or two to come where they're going to make up and use some of that money they're saving. But I think that's probably the, the biggest head-scratcher for me so far. Yeah, I I agree. I think a lot of it will depend on how that the rest of that draft goes. And I think you said it well that maybe some of these guys are over slot guys that we just don't really know about yet. But that was definitely the one that made you scratch your head most at first. I, you know, at the risk of being a homer, I think the Rockies did a very good job yesterday, which it says a lot about where that organization is headed now. They've got a player development guy in Jeff Breidich, who was their director of player development, who's now the general manager there. So I think they're going to place a heavy emphasis on drafts like this going forward. Another team that I really, really liked with they did was the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Dodgers went out and got Walker Bueller at 24th overall. 11 picks later, they got Kyle Funkhauser uh, at 35th overall. So two college right-handers, two guys who are very projectable, very advanced, and they got them pretty late. And I think the Dodgers, you know, every team says, oh, we were surprised to get this guy at this pick. That's kind of the line after a draft. But I think the Dodgers could probably more genuinely than anybody else say, pretty surprised to come away with both Bueller and Kyle Funkhauser uh, at the latter stages of the first round into the supplemental first round. So I I really like what the Dodgers did as well because that's a system that has a lot of pitching talent but I think is hungry for more because of what they've been able to acquire on the position player side the Dodgers are a team that I everybody is going to point to as having the biggest payroll in baseball but they have a ton of minor league talent and I think they added some really really good uh, advanced arms and guys who can climb quickly yesterday too uh, so that was one of the impressive first rounds to me and uh, it's fun though it's really good there are a lot of really good storylines yesterday as well uh, Brady Aiken of course jumps back into the first round we know his saga of last season but he goes 17th overall to the Cleveland Indians he'll be recovering from Tommy John surgery but you know still to see a guy like that uh be rewarded for his talent and get a first round pick he'll get some first round money not what he would have had last year but i thought that was very very cool to see uh jacob nix ends up going he was the guy who got kind of jobbed in that whole circumstance with brady aiken last season in which the money that the astros originally planned to sign him with ended up not being there because of the aiken fiasco but jacob nix went 86th overall to the padres in the third round uh so i think there are a lot of guys who have some very good redeeming qualities uh, and maybe didn't necessarily get to showcase them last year. Uh, and maybe they have those qualities because of last year. But uh, some other guys who have dealt with his health issues, uh, someone like Brady Aiken, uh, Michael Matuel out of Duke, went to the Texas Rangers today with the 78th overall picks that we're recording this, obviously, on uh, on Tuesday, the day of the second round uh, or the third round and, and later. But there are a lot of those stories so far 
And those are fun. I mean, that's something that you get in the MLB draft that uh, is probably a bit more pronounced this year, especially because of what happened with Aiken last year. But I like those stories as well. Yeah, Matsuela falling to the third round was surprising. I thought he was going to go a little. I thought so too. I think I think it's just a matter. I think a lot of teams just didn't get a chance to see him at his best. I think he he's. I think when he's pitched at his best, everything we've heard is that it's you know as good as as any amateur pitcher we've we've really seen in a while. But he's you know the times he's done that, you can count him on on two hands pretty much. So I think I think probably teams in you know if you're going to invest first or second round money in a guy, I think you want to at least have seen him be at his best and not just kind of have the hearsay on that. Jake, it was a very good day yesterday for Royals area scout Mike Farrell. It's not often that you get two first-rounders uh, in a draft, but out of the same area and the same position. Tell us about what the Royals did yesterday. Yeah, actually, I, I love this story. So we, we first talked to, to Ash Russell, who was at the draft yesterday, um, after he got selected by the Royals 21st overall. Um, and he we, get, we were asking him about sort of the experience of being at the draft, and he mentioned that he actually was only able to be at the draft. His high school team had just lost, and they had lost to – uh, his team is uh, Cathedral High School in, in Indiana, and he had lost to Lawrence North, which is where right-hander Nolan Watson was from. And he was saying that he knew Watson was a guy who was probably going to get drafted at some point. Well, Watson ended up getting drafted 12 picks later by the Royals. So Russell and Watson going from being guys who were competing in the, the Indiana State Tournament against each other, and now they're going to be teammates and pitchers probably in the same rotations at the lower levels of, of the Royal system. And both of them were scouted primarily by Mike Farrell. The, the quote in the story I got from Russell, actually, uh, Russell's quote, he was at almost every single outing except for one, I want to say, uh, which he went to see Nolan Watson. Um, and, and so the one time that Russell was missed, it's because Farrell was, was going to see Watson. So clearly a guy who, uh, I know there's a quote from Dayton Moore saying this was basically a coincidence that they drafted two guys who were wrecked by the same area scout that the board just kind of fell that way, but... Uh, you know, scouts go 20, 30-year careers, and they don't ever get a first-round pick. To get two of them in the, the same day is a pretty cool thing. I thought that was a, a cool story and, and something to, uh, you know, the kind of thing that's buried in these drafts that maybe doesn't get as much play or, or is getting more play now because it's being covered a little more. But I thought that was a cool thing. It's one of those things that I would imagine that Mike Farrell will put, like, in the highest quality area of his resume. Yep. In case one day he needs to, like, well, you know, I did have two first-rounders in 2015. What can I say? Uh, but Jake, I mean, give me your th- your overall experience of being there yesterday because, like we said a little bit earlier, this has turned into such an event. And I tweeted yesterday that Major League Baseball and MLB Network deserve a lot of credit for – building this MLB draft experience now into something that people are genuinely interested in. I think this time 10 years ago, nobody really knew. I heard a really interesting interview with uh, Walt Weiss yesterday, the Rockies manager who talked about when he was drafted, you know, they had a family friend who had a connection in the Dodgers organization who was like listening to picks coming off of the wire, Mm -hmm. like an actual news wire about where guys were going. And, you know, you didn't find out instantly. There weren't cameras in your home. You didn't show up in, in Chicago's New Jersey and shake the commissioner's hand, but it's cool now. I mean, they've turned it into a legit event and being there and being able to witness it yesterday uh you know i mean you see brendan rogers he's the first one in studio yesterday who gets to shake the commissioner's hand and his family's there and there's all that celebration and then a parade of guys high school guys follow behind him what was the whole experience like from your point of view yeah i mean i think the thing that stands out most is just the amount of baseball royalty that's there i mean the the guests the guys the teams brought along yesterday was ken griffey jr John Smoltz, Tommy Lasorda, Andre Dawson, Tony Perez, Mike Schmidt, B.J. Surhoff's a former number one pick. He was there. Commissioner Rob Manfred's there. You got Harold Reynolds and all those guys hosting the, the event. Um, really, really a cool space to have it on the, that Studio 42 field. It was my first time being in, in the studio and a really cool setup, a little bit tight for some of us writers in the back, a little tough to get into the interviews and stuff, but um, definitely a really cool setup and ran remarkably smoothly for what an event it is and, and how they're kind of trying to set everything up. And they got, you know, a live broadcast going on with, you know, I don't know, what were there, like 200 of us in the room just all flying around doing our own thing around it. Um, really cool experience for the players. There was only four guys that got to make it uh, there this year. And uh, Garrett Whitley, Ash Russell, um, and, the, and Brendan Rogers and Mike Nickerack. Um, so I think it's it's gotten to be a much bigger deal than it was, but I think MLB is not done trying to make this a bigger deal. We talked with the, Rob Manfred did a, a press thing yesterday talking about how he really sees this as an opportunity for Major League Baseball to market the players and start marketing the players at an earlier age. He thinks that's the thing that's going to get people invested in this, and I think he's probably right with that, is if you have some idea of who Dansby Swanson is going into the draft and then you know Dansby Swanson is going to be there. And you can see that moment when he finds out that he's gone first overall and is 
going to make life-changing amounts of money and, and was thought of this highly and knows his, you know, his whole life is kind of coming together like that. I think that's the moment in these drafts that we're also interested in. It's that and then being able to kind of dream on what builds off that. And it's a real shame that right now the college guys are really left out of that process. You saw some of the, the top picks, Swanson and, and some of those other guys. They were able to do some interviews with cameras on TV. But Swanson was playing in a game yesterday in the, the College World Series in, or in a Super Regional. He was playing against Tyler J. Right. He's a first-round pick. He, you know, Carson Fulmer's a teammate. He was there. These guys are all still playing baseball. They can't come and be there for the event. Uh, so Manfred actually said he, he wants to talk to the NCAA. He wants to see if they can find a date that's going to work better um, where they can still – you know, work around the, the College World Series where hopefully they can get some of these college guys to show up where it's not going to interfere with the, the schedule for the short season leagues. They can still get guys signed and into camp. I think they really like uh, in the last CBA, they changed the signing deadline. They moved it up a month. So now all these guys, and we saw Kyle Schwarber and, and all these guys last year who drafted, they were in pro ball by July um, as opposed to in the past where guys were getting there maybe in, in you know, at August or the middle of August, the season ends and, and the playoffs start in early September. So there wasn't a whole lot of time for them to get much valuable experience, and that's something they can get now. Um, so that's a really fine line they kind of have to toe. You can't really move the draft much later than it is now and still get those guys into the short-season leagues and give them enough time to negotiate all these contracts. Um, I think there's things that maybe that could be eased if the NCAA backs off a little bit on its um, you know, its quest to keep players from talking to agents, but that's certainly a bigger thing. I think there's... Um, you know, somebody asked Manfred if he would consider moving the draft to Omaha, so it's at least a little bit closer to where the College World Series is happening. And uh, he didn't give that an outright no. He just kind of said that's 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 a down the road discussion. Um, so I think we're going to see changes in in this aspect of the draft probably coming forward, built both between the the new next CBA in 2016 and just talking with the NCAA. It seems like Manfred is very eager to have that conversation and very eager to uh, willing to give some things up maybe to get the NCAA's involvement in that and to build this into a little bit more of an event than it is now. Um, and I think that's going to be a good thing for, for everybody involved. I think it's, it's good if you know, MLB can help promote the, the NCAA, especially in the playoffs, to get these guys some airtime and get them in front of baseball fans. I think that benefits the NCAA, and I think it benefits Major League Baseball if, if we all know who these players are a little bit more heading into the draft and not just you and I who obviously follow these things pretty closely, but even more casual fans, if they have a reason to, to tune into the College World Series just to, to see a guy they know is going to go one overall or two overall or something like that. So I think those changes are, are probably coming in the next few years, and I think that's that's going to be a welcome thing. But for now, certainly a, a really cool event. Uh, you know, Glad I was, I was able to be there and, and check that out. And um, you know, One of the cooler things I've gotten to do kind of through this career. The NCAA, I mean, obviously has a lot of its own kind of issues as it pertains to the whole process where players can't technically talk to agents. They have to talk to advisors, all that kind of stuff that came up yesterday. But my hope would be that the NCAA would realize that it's going to ultimately benefit them by being more involved in this process. So that'll be fascinating to watch as that relationship continues to develop down the road. But very cool getting a chance to uh, to kind of live the draft through Jake's eyes yesterday. You can check out his stuff on Twitter and on the site today, by the way, at Jake underscore signer and uh, at MILB.com. A lot of really, really good stuff from, uh, from Secaucus yesterday. So that'll wrap up our draft day number one recap from the 2015 MLB first year player draft it's going on today and tomorrow Wednesday and Thursday by the time you hear it uh, draft could be done for 2015 which is crazy and uh, a whole new crop of basically right now you're learning who will be on your team's favorite Appy League or Northwest League or Pioneer League or GCL or AZL affiliate. That's pretty much what you're learning now from today through tomorrow. All these bulk round picks that are coming like once every 30 seconds on the MLB Draft Tracker Twitter account. So get excited. You get to learn all these names quickly and then they'll all be on a field near you in two weeks. Not even two weeks, like eight days now for the start of the uh, short season leagues. Should be fun. Yep, yep, definitely excited for that. Coming up next, episode number 11 of MILB.com's The Show Before the Show podcast. Benjamin Hill joins us to talk a little Ben's biz here from uh, New York City and Denver, Colorado. As we cover this draft from coast to not quite actually coast. Ben joins us next. show before the show listeners matt harvey andrew mccutcheon and alex gordon are just a few of the major league baseball stars who have played in the triple a all-star game and now you can help select the players for this season's game at warner field in omaha nebraska visit www.milb.com slash ballot to cast your vote today that's www.milb.com slash ballot 
Some of the biggest benefits of Benjamin Hill's road trips across the world to minor league baseball are they're the gifts that keep on giving. It's not done with just the blogs and the stuff when Ben's actually there. When he comes back, that's when the, the feature work begins. And some good stuff this week out of the Midwest League as we welcome in our good pal Benjamin Hill. Hi, Ben. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Jake. So let's talk about uh, a couple that you met some like Midwest League legends, some old guys in the Midwest League who have devoted their lives to baseball and other things. And uh, let's start in Cedar Rapids, where if you've you know worked in the world of minor league baseball, you've been around the world of minor league baseball. It feels like you live at the ballpark. But in Cedar Rapids, there is a guy who actually lives at the ballpark. Tell us about Ron Pline. Right. Ron Pline. Um, his name. That's his name. But literally everyone knows him by the name of Rody. R-O-A-D-Y, and that was apparently shortened from Roadrunner just because he uh, runs really fast. He used to be a bat boy and chase after the foul balls. But this is a guy who's been working in the Midwest League going back to the mid-'70s. Uh, since 1993, he's been with the Cedar Rapids Colonels in a club clubby capacity. And uh, when the Cedar Rapids Colonels ballpark was built in 2002, he was such a fixture, and also he didn't know how to drive a car, that they built a apartment in the stadium just for this guy in the new ballpark when it opened in 2000. So awesome! And uh, 13 years later, that is still where he lives. He's you know in his in his 70s now. He's uh, reduced some of his uh, responsibilities. He used to travel with the team and do both clubhouses, and now he works in the concession stands during the game and then does the visiting clubhouse. Um, but literally, there's the laundry room, and then next to the laundry room, there's a door. And it has, you know, pictures of him and his old Christmas cards and, you know, Cedar Rapids players and pictures. And that is the door to his apartment. And he literally lives at the ballpark. I think there might be some kind of legalese where he's also a, uh, like, night watchman or something of that capacity to kind of justify a year-round presence in the ballpark. But, you know, that's what I like when I go on these road trips. I always say to the teams, like, look, I'm here for one night. You know, you don't necessarily need to tell me what to do, but please, you know, give me something unique. Tell me about someone here I need to talk to. And eventually when I was at the Colonel's game, pretty quickly was like, oh, you got to talk to Rhodey. And there he is, a a 71-year-old man, 40-some years of baseball experience, lives in the ballpark. When you say apartment in the stadium, is he like like there's a bedroom there and he folds down a cot and then if he's hungry he's got to run over to the Aramark stand and get some food or is this like a full furnished apartment just tucked away by the clubhouse? You know, I did not enter the apartment. You know, I took a picture of him standing by the door but I felt it would be a little presumptuous or intrusive to say, hey, can you uh, let me in Mm. Um, if he had offered that would have been cool to see but but considering that he lives here year round um, I can confidently say that at the very least there's a a real bed not a cot or pull out and you know a kitchen for at least some you know basic food preparation because it's literally his home so he needs the basics any of us would need to live somewhere year round and he has that you know in the locker room right there next to to the laundry room that was uh, this week's Farms Almanac. That came out uh, just a few days ago on the 5th of June. And a couple days before that, there was another interesting story from the Midwest League. Ray Jimenez, who has turned into a Clinton, Iowa fixture and played in Clinton 40 years ago and is still in Clinton and has a really interesting story as well, Ben. Yeah, he's another guy I met. I honestly never heard of the guy until I showed up in Clinton. And there you go. I mean, as you guys know, you go to these ballparks and you, you just meet interesting people everywhere you go. But Ray Jimenez... Uh, was born in Cuba, grew up in the Bronx, uh, you know, was drafted by the Detroit Tigers organization, made his debut in the Appy League in the same year that uh, was with Jim Leland as his manager, in Jim Leland's first year as a manager. And him and Leland, their kind of careers paralleled uh, through the Detroit Tigers system. But Jimenez played three years in Clinton and didn't really get much beyond that. So while his baseball career was only four or five seasons and didn't pan out in terms of major league stardom, he found in Clinton, you know, something that he didn't find in his life before then, you know, leaving Cuba under political turmoil, growing up in, you know, a very rough neighborhood in the Bronx. When he made it to Clinton as a baseball player, he, you know, he told me, um, you know, he was looking for something slower paced, you know, more tranquil to raise a family. And he found it there in his minor league baseball career. He met his wife there, had his family there became ordained as a minister, became Pastor Ray, uh, opened up a homeless shelter in the area, and now 40 years later, he's still at almost every Clinton Lumber Kings game. Um, you know, he does the baseball chapel. 
He uh, hosts the coaching staff in his home you know, during the season. They actually live with him. He mentors some of the Hispanic players and helps them with the, uh, you know, the, the the very difficult transition from their culture and their environment to you know Middle America. So there he is, a guy who was a member of the Clinton Pilots in 1973, 1974, and 1975. Let me just interject really quick. He seems like the type of guy who virtually every minor league team would be very it would be very beneficial for a team to have every team to have somebody like that especially because of what he does to help latin players get acclimated that's so difficult and in situations like the midwest league where you get sent to a, a city or a town or somewhere in in the middle of america where nobody speaks your language and it's a very difficult adjustment guys like that are invaluable and they're very unsung heroes i think yeah, definitely. And as you know, sometimes there's members of the coaching staff proper who can play that role. But I'm kind of surprised it is not a sort of guaranteed position in every single minor league town to have someone, you know, at the behest and, you know, on the payroll of the parent club to make sure these players have someone like that. Because, uh, um, you know, Ray was saying that when I was talking to him, he said, you know, the, the Mariners love me, which I assume they do, you know, the Mariners being the parent club, because it's 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 unimaginably unimaginably difficult i think and something we can't quite put into perspective to grow up you know in poverty most likely uh, you know in the dominican republic and then be living in clinton iowa at age 19 20 it's it's just surreal yeah ben did you bring a, a crooked number to share with us this week i did bring a crooked number to share uh changing gears to the crooked number which of course is Something just strange, weird, out of the ordinary that happens in minor league baseball. I'm going to keep this really simple uh, as opposed to going into some uh, deep rabbit hole of weirdness. But uh, this was just an email forwarded, me, forwarded it to me this week. And it's the Birmingham Barons. They signed uh, outfielder, first baseman Christopher Marrero from the Atlantic League, an independent league. And at the end of the press release announcing this, it says... He is the brother of current Baron Christian Marrero. So the Barons have signed, or the White Sox have assigned in a, to Birmingham, Chris, Christopher Marrero, where he joins on the team his brother Christian Marrero. So now you have brothers Christopher and Christian Marrero on the Birmingham Barons. Uh, Tyler is a former broadcaster. It's kind of tough to make sense of those uh, name situations, I imagine. You well, know what's funny? To the back of the jerseys, because they, they both have to Yeah, Chris Marrero. That's yes, a really I, good point. This is yeah, a question for Johnny Lodge. Christ Morero? Is yeah, Christopher so, going to be Christ? So you can have Chris Morero and then the different – yeah, that you should just say Christ Morero. <laughs> See, and what is very confusing too uh, is – well, or at least what was very confusing to me was that those two guys both went through the uh, Carolina League basically in succession. Uh, Chris Morero – who was the draft pick 15th overall of the Washington Nationals in 2006. He was in Potomac in 2007, 2008, and 2009. I started in the uh, in the Carolina League in 2009. And then Chris Marrero, his brother, was in the Carolina League in 2009 as well. He was in Winston-Salem. And so that was like, wait a minute. So which one? Who is this guy? What is what? And that, Yeah. And now the I'm going to be so confused with the jersey thing. Yeah, so now they're on the first team, the same team. Christian Chris uh, makes sense of it. It's maybe not quite as um, confusing as JD and DJ Davis True. in, the, oh, in the Lansing outfield. But uh, uh, yeah, Christian and Chris uh, playing for the Barons together at last. That's exciting. That's exciting stuff. It's got to be good stuff for the Marrero family, too. And, you know, they're not too far away. They're Miami guys, not too far from home. That's fun stuff. Go check out Benjamin Hill's stuff uh, on the site this week. Also, we've got the promo preview up. Uh, a couple of really good things in the promo preview this week. One thing, Ben, if you want to cover really quickly, the Frederick Keys are going back to the celebrity chef well. Brian Voltaggio, who a few years ago came into Frederick to Harry Grove Stadium and blew out some crazy uh, dishes at the concession stands. He's back. Yeah, he's back. They're doing another Volt Night in Frederick where basically uh, Brian Voltaggio and members of his, of his staff overtake the uh, concession stand and, uh, you know, give it a uh, kind of upscale twist with some of the classic ballpark food items. I, I don't have the menu in front of me now, but uh, I know there was a um, – one of the sandwiches had aerated cheese on it, and I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I think this will be the first time you can go to a ballpark and get aerated cheese on your sandwich. So uh, – Market on the calendar, Frederick Keys, celebrity chef at the ballpark this coming Monday, uh, which would be June 15th. Brian Voltaggio offering upscale cuisine 
at minor league baseball prices. When you Google aerated cheese, the first thing that comes up is something from Popular Science Magazine. The headline is, quote, blowing up cheese with nitrous oxide. And that sounds delicious. That sounds like a thing a minor league baseball team would do. <laughs> yeah. uh, not to be confused with R-rated cheese. With just- <laughs> <laughs> That's just cheese that has very inappropriate language in adult themes. <laughs> Benjamin Hill is our guest on episode number 11 of Minor League Baseball's The Show Before the Show podcast. Give Ben a follow on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz. You can check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. And of course, you can read his stuff always on milb.com as well. Ben, thanks, pal. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, thanks. Always appreciate it. All right, dudes. Um, yeah, I guess all we got is the outro now. Yeah, if you want to, you want us to read the. We have Brendan and, and everybody else is in here now too. You want to see him to read the voiceover on um, the show? Cool. Yeah. So, uh, did you get my email, Tyler, about that? Uh, let me see. I had my email closed, so it didn't come through. So there's, um, we're gonna we're gonna send some. So it's like two parts. One part one is we're gonna send some voiceovers to Triple awesome. for the Triple A ballot, and so. Um, I nominated you to read the voiceovers. Yeah, that'll work. Uh, and we also, I think, want to drop one into this week's podcast. Somewhere. Okay. Um, so you, you can you, you can introduce it and then just say it, or do whatever you want to do it. Cool. And decide you, you can do it by yourself in like a half hour. You don't have to do it like okay. But that uh, works. Just so you know. Um, awesome. Yeah. The Dan, Danny and John and I are in here just because we have a call at five. But okay, we will wait until you guys finish up. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah, I'll just uh, I'll slap these together. I'll put them, if this sounds good, Brendan, I'll just like, when we get out of that segment with Ben, because um, our first three segments just kind of tangent into each other. But when we get out of that segment with Ben, I'll play like our intro music out, and then I'll just play another, you know, like bed song, a rights-free song under it. And I'll run that like sort of as if it's a commercial, and then I'll just run our little horn music back into our outro segment, if that makes sense. Just run it like a commercial break, basically. Okay, cool. All right, then, uh, Jake, you all ready? You want to wrap it up? Yeah. Um, is there anybody we want to hit for sure on MILB TV this week? Um, Corey Seager is hitting like $8 trillion lately. He'd probably be a good one, as always. Um, oh, one thing we could do is just um, – I was thinking we could plug because uh, I know there are a handful of rookie level and short season teams that have MILB TV. So we could say, you know, those seasons get started next week. You can subscribe to MILB TV now. Be ready for when, you know, Dansby Swanson or whoever is, is debuting with uh, with your favorite team if they have. Um, you can say it like we're hearing that the Hillsborough Hops home games will be on MILB TV this year. Which okay. Is- have awesome Swanson looks like likely to go to Hillsborough at least sweet awesome yeah just yeah, I mean there's a few there the other there's like uh Aberdeen's on Mill TV and okay Grand Junction I know is so Rogers Idaho Falls um cool yeah there's a, there's a bunch of the Pioneer League actually I think I think like yeah there's a lot of the Pioneer League it seems like who's, who's, who's the Cubs out there I think they're on there uh, uh Eugene now I think is the Cubs like, Eugene or to Eugene, we don't have listed. Yeah, they they dropped them. Yeah, the Rockies moved into Boise. So the Rockies up Grand Junction. The Cubs have uh, now looks like. So it's the first day of the short season leagues. Um, they start I think next Thursday. 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 uh, The Northwest League and the Pioneer League start next Thursday, and the following week is the New York Penn League and the Appalachian League. Uh, let me just get you There's actually a decent amount. Orem has it. Uh, let's see. At least out here, Grand Junction, Idaho Falls, Orem, and well, it looks like that's it from the. It's like on opening day, Idaho Falls is the only one that has. Okay. Your league. And, and uh, Aberdeen, in New York Penn, and Hillsborough. I don't know if they open at home or not, but they are. Um, yeah, it says 14 days to the home runner, so I'm guessing they're not opening at home. But not that Swanson would have signed by then and be ready to play. But, uh, but All right. Yeah, we'll do that real quick, and then we'll uh, we'll get out of here. Cool. All right, three, two, and one. 
Big thanks, as always, to Benjamin Hill for joining us here on episode number 11 of Minor League Baseball's The Show Before the Show podcast. Big thanks also to Garrett Whitley, who joined Jake yesterday from Secaucus, New Jersey, ahead of the 2015 MLB first-year player drafts day one uh, at MLB Network. And uh, it's an exciting week. It's a fun week. And coming up next week, uh, another fun week. You get to do opening day several times when you're a fan of Minor League Baseball. And next week, short season leagues get started, the Northwest League, the Pioneer League. Some of these top prospects, some of these future top prospects, guys, coming out of the draft will be on milb.tv uh very soon we're hearing that the hillsborough hops could have their games on milb tv this year dansby swanson could be headed there after he gets signed perhaps with the arizona diamondbacks uh brendan rogers who's the third overall pick could be ticketed for short season uh grand junction in the pioneer league uh rookie level club there they are on milb.tv so you can get your subscription there and check out some of those guys as well as all the rest of the top talent rolling through the minor leagues and headed toward uh carlos correa like promotions for the 2015 season and beyond uh jake it was fun getting a chance to to hear some thoughts on what it's like to actually be at the draft next year i'm just gonna i'm just gonna crash your party and go hang around with you at the draft it's gonna be my plan welcome to come keep me company i was i was missing your company at times (laughs) i did i missed it yesterday but i saw somebody tweeted hey that's jake signer on my tv yeah i was was so like i was glaring at uh in john (laughs) hammond's direction just give it a stare down john hammond but he just happened to be (laughs) <laughs> well, I was in the line. intently on the question I wanted to ask him <laughs> it was in my my line of sight so go give Jake a follow on Twitter Jake underscore signer I'm on Twitter at Tyler Mon. you can follow MILB at MILB as always rate review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes we love when you do that we started getting some emails you can send us an email podcast at MILB.com and as well you can check us out uh, all season long on MILB.com we'll have links to the episodes there as well so for now we'll wrap up episode number 11 of the show before the show and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week enjoy the remainder of the draft and uh, get ready for the start of short season ball because it's coming up very very quickly talk to you guys next week hey rob bradford here you guys know i'm always up for a good mvp story and one of the best stories is wasabi technology wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams including 20 major league baseball teams like the red Sox and nhl teams like the bruins and vancouver canucks even the liverpool football club is getting in on the wasabi action so why is wasabi the mvp well wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the amazons of the world are charging in fact wasabi is up to 80 percent less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from wasabi's ai enabled intelligent media storage wasabi air to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals data deletion and ransomware wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data wasabi another boston-based championship team